0: In this episode, JB and Mike have a chat with the Net Documents Compliance Department about GDPR, Brexit, and juggling?
1: You don't need law school. Law school's for people who are boring and ugly and serious.
2: Welcome
3: to Legally Clouded, Mike and Javier. Welcome to episode fourteen. Wow, this—I guess it logically comes after episode thirteen, doesn't it?
2: At least it—it it does. Yeah, and this one, this one is is not uh, superstitious. This is the one is not thirteen. This one is fourteen.
3: That's right. Did you ever see that movie, Saturday the Fourteenth?
2: I, I did not. No, that <laughs> so, sounds like an interesting deal.
3: Uh, well, Friday the Thirteenth obviously is horror; it's very serious. Saturday the Fourteenth is exactly the opposite. It's a spoof on Friday the Thirteenth, and you know I, I love slapstick comedy. This is a, definitely a slapsticky type movie with Jeffrey Tambor. So, all right, yeah, I, I wouldn't say rush out and see it. It wasn't the best movie, but if you're up late one night and you can't sleep, I, I think you'd appreciate it.
2: At that nice. that time of night, yeah, 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 and I I, I have a lot of those types of nights. So
3: <laughs> I'm sure you do. I'm sure, in fact, wasn't there a rumor, right? Last episode we had uh, we had Greg and Ron from Affinity didn't didn't I hear something that you and Greg almost did a one a.m. podcast episode? <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh that that I I yes, we um <laughs> we met up after our um our events. Uh, on, on Wednesday night of ILTA, which, as you know, tend to go quite late. Um, and we met up in that sort of uh, round gathering area in the dolphin. I believe it was called Fins, And uh, we, we just happened to pass each other, and I was there with quite a few other people. And, and, and that week, you know, ILTA is so... Uh, there's so many events and so many things going on we had talked about wanting to try and re- record that episode of the podcast uh, that we did episode 13 while we were at ilta we thought it'd be great to have some FaceTime and you know uh, everybody could be there and in person um, and and you know schedules just weren't lining up and, and everybody was was really busy however at 1 a.m. We, we we met up and and we thought it might be a good idea to go ahead and record that episode right then and there um, I'm sort of glad we didn 't, uh, but i'm in some ways I'm i 'm anxious I wanted to see how maybe that would have turned out and, you know it, it could have been quite interesting, but anyway no we we, we chose to uh, to avoid that uh, that endeavor
3: yeah, I think one one day we might want to try that, and it was funny that as, as you know, we were, we were talking with Greg and Ron last time before we hit the record button, they were talking about how Affinity, I, I think it's Affinity or, or some other partner has a podcast called Docs After Dark. And yeah. I I love the name, but I, I like that concept. That could be, that could be quite interesting.
2: <laughs> I agree. Yeah. That, uh, that reminds me of, of, of some older podcasts that I used to watch where, um, uh, you know, there, there were just some really funny things that happened after, uh, after some time, but anyway, yeah, yeah, we digress. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. Mike, I'm I'm excited about this one. Um, this is something that I think you know is is pretty near and dear to some people's hearts. Some people have have heard of it, some haven't. Maybe some have just briefly brushed the issue and aren't um, aren't very familiar with the concepts. Uh, but today, we're going to be talking about compliance and GDPR, uh, which you know, depending on some people, might have already turned off the podcast or or switch to the next one or a previous one Um, but for me i I think this is interesting stuff and the reason i say that is it's interesting times you know given what's what's going on over in in england right now with with brexit and the impact that that's going to have um you know and 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 as we look at gdpr and the role that that's playing you know it's one thing if you were uh you know that that model is 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 evolving from from being you know on premise to taking care of your own stuff to how cloud providers and, and cloud uh, companies are actually handling data and, and so I believe that in the in the GDPR space this is going to be something that is you know continually going to come up and, and something that everybody is going to need to be more aware of uh, and and we happen to have some very good some good folks uh, that are going to be discussing that today right Mike who, who do we have for us
3: yeah no you're exactly right so net documents as part of the service that we offer to our, our clients is we have a compliance department. And it's, it's full-time people within the company. In fact, we have David Hansen, who's our vice president of compliance and manages that team. And then we have Joe Gretenberger and Dave Snow who do a lot of the compliance type activities, whether it's going after additional certifications or assisting our clients with audits or doing things along those lines. So they're all focused on security, on compliance, on standards, on certifications, and the nice thing is, as we get those certifications, our our clients simply inherit those certifications. So it, it's a beautiful thing. We do all the work, and yes, we get the benefit, but our clients do as well. So that's who's on tap. But before we go to those interviews, we've got uh, our our standard, you know, timeline a little bit as far as events that where net
2: documents is going
3: to be do you happen to have those in front of you jb
2: i do um it's amazing you would think that uh, i might have to scramble and find those but for some reason when we record these mike i have them right in front of me every time and i don't know why that is
3: wait no. wait wait you you mean we prepare this isn't from the hip
2: ah <laughs> uh, you know i yep yeah, no I, it seems like it it might actually be uh be prepared yep wonderful so, <laughs> yep so we've got we've got a few things coming up here in in the months of September and October. So uh, September 19th is the Nordic Legal Tech Day in Stockholm. Uh, September 29th through October 2nd is the Vis-a-vis Legal Technology in Hatfield Heath, in the UK. Uh, coming back to the U.S., we have October 6th through 8th is our annual ND Elevate event. That it's being held in in Salt Lake City, in in Utah. And October 23rd through 25th, uh, we're going even even farther south, and, and we're have, there's an event called Fenalaw, and that is in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I know you're looking forward to that one, Mike. Yes, I and, am. And um, November 6th, finally, is our annual ND Elevate UK event in London, which will be held in the County Hall Building. Uh, Mike, if people want to sign up, how can they, how can they sign up for, for some of these events, mainly, uh, you know, and especially ND Elevate? I know it's getting super close, so we want to make sure that we give uh, everybody there a, a chance to sign up.
3: Absolutely. So both of these events are for partners, are for customers. If you're a prospect and interested in attending, talk to your NetDocuments account rep. But for partners and customers, we have online registration for Elevate in the U.S., That's October 6th through the 8th. You can go to www.elevate-2019.com. And we've got a registration page there with all the information. And that conference is shaping up to be really nice. It's three days. There's lots of good stuff, lots of good sessions, lots of networking events. For Elevate UK, you can go to elevate-2019.co.uk. And let me tell you something, JB. So this year, 2019, this is our 20th year in the cloud. And all I have to say is if you were to attend one NetDocuments event, this is the one, whether in the U.S. or the U.K., they are both going to have some very special stuff going on, specifically to celebrate our 20 years in the cloud. So... Really, it is one you can't miss. It's going to be great.
2: Yeah, I can't wait. I'm excited. Yes, me
3: too. All right. Well, thanks for the wrap-up of of where we're going to be and when we're going to be. And now I think it's about time to go talk to David, Joe, and Dave. So hold on tight, and we'll catch you right after the break.
0: Welcome back to segment two of our podcast, Legally Cloud. By the way, if you want to reach out to us, at Legally Cloud on Twitter. Today, JB and I have organized not one guest, not two guests, but three guests, very special guests on our podcast today. Today, we've got the Net Documents Compliance Department. We have David Hansen, Joe Grettenberger, and Dave Snow, and we're so excited. And in fact, I'm actually in the conference room with them here. I'm looking at them straight in their eye, and they're all looking back at me saying, Mike, what in the world are we doing here? They have no
4: idea. We are. We're very concerned. But
0: in spite of you being here with us, we are glad to be part of this. That's I I right. Be
5: lunch. I don't <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so what we're going to do is, is like we've done our other interviews, uh, we want to get, we want to get to know the people that participate in our podcast. And so we've got, you know, those who have our three or four listeners that we have each time have have heard the questions that we ask back and forth. And and so first of all, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pose this question to all three of you. So I want you to introduce yourself. So state your name, how long you've been with that documents, and then you know applicable background in in legal or compliance or relevant experience. And I don't care who starts.
4: Well, I'm going to ask uh, Joe to start first as our um, manager of compliance and specializing on internal <laughs> compliance work. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your, yourself, Joe?
1: Okay. So, I came from the audit uh, industry. I've been a certified auditor for 19 years and a, a, a defense department auditor for five years before that. So I've been an audit group for quite a while and a compliance manager here almost two years at NetDocs um, and, and have about three years under my belt as a compliance manager, but I've been in the compliance space for quite a while. Um, so I guess that's it for me. And so that's Joe Gretenberger, and then
4: uh, the other member – one other member of our team is Dave Snow.
5: So, uh, yeah, uh, I'm Dave Snow. I've uh, been with NetDocuments for – it'll be seven years on June 1st. Uh, I spent five and a half years in – uh, professional services doing customer implementations a year and a half now in uh, on the compliance team. I uh, before I came to net documents, I practiced law for 14 years. Uh, decided to go back to my tech roots and, <laughs> and uh, I love that. Uh, my main job now is uh, doing our vendor assessments and responding to uh, inquiries from our customers for vendor assessments. So uh, somebody's looking for security compliance information about NetDocuments, odds are you're going to hear back from me. So, wonderful. Yeah. And we do have
0: some customers listening to the podcast, so you recognize his writing. Now, now you hear his voice.
4: There you go. Dave is also our internal DMS administrator here at NetDocuments. Uh, we lean heavily on his technical expertise there. And I'm the other member of the Compliance Department. My name is David Hansen. I, I lead the Compliance Department. I've been with NET Documents, oh, about almost six years now. And I am a CPA by training and have worked in a variety of different industries and roles. And all of that has helped very well as I've come to NET Documents, being able to work with all of the different departments and help them come together as we have implemented our ISO certifications, our – undergo our annual Type II SOC II audits and our additional certifications. And so uh, it's been a great ride to be part of uh, the growth of NetDocuments and to see also the changing world of security and compliance and to be uh, at a company that help leads in that area. So that's that's our compliance team here at NetDocuments.
0: Great, well, well, thank you, all three of you very much. Now, the other thing, a little bit more revealing, right? So we know a little bit about you. I want to know, give us a unique fact something that may not necessarily be common knowledge. Like, Joe, don't tell me your name is Joe, we know that. Give me something unique about you that's interesting.
1: I'm a juggler, I juggle.
0: <laughs> What's your preferred Literal. object to juggle? I didn't know that. Did you know that? <laughs> I did
5: not know that. I, I mean, at least not <laughs> literally. No. <laughs> I
1: um, I juggle knives, torches, <clears throat> balls, and, and beanbags. So how
4: many? Can you comfortably have up
1: in the air at one time? I can do five for a little while, uh, but I can do four for a good time. That
4: explains why he's so good at juggling all the things here in the office
0: now. He 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 literally practices juggling on on
5: multitask. So I think we need to
0: invite you to our Elevate conference in October and (laughs) and and make you one one of the. uh, (laughs) uh, Thank you, J B, and make you one of the lunchtime entertainers. That would be awesome. That would be great. Do you do like uh, torches on fire? I can't. Oh my goodness! I JB, I think we have a winner right here. That
2: Mike, is is their torch, torch not on fire, or were you using the English vernacular and talking about a, a, a flashlight?
0: Flashlight.
2: Flashlight. Okay, <laughs> got it.
5: All right, Dave. Give us something unique about you. I was trying to think of something truly unique. I actually legally changed my middle name when I was 16 years old. Why? Because. My parents and I always hated the name, the middle name they gave me at birth. And we just, we, my mom and I were someplace, uh, we were down at a courthouse taking care of something and uh, she said, oh look, there's the name change place. We literally walked in and, and changed it five minutes on the spot.
0: So, so you know what my question is, can <laughs> you please divulge?
5: My middle name when out on my birth certificate is David Brett. Snow. Now it's David Wayne MacArthur Snow, Wayne MacArthur was my dad's name. So, very nice, yeah. very nice. And, of course, now I have two middle initials, and nobody knows what to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's
4: All right, great. David, you're up. Uh, something interesting that I do – every year, I have a, a group of three other men, and the four of us, every year for the last 22, 23 years, have gone on a week-long hike somewhere uh, in the United States, or uh, actually, last year, we went up to Alaska, which is in the United States, but mostly, we're in the continental United States we've hiked all over uh, the West. Uh, Sometimes we go into the deserts and slot canyons. We're often up um, summiting peaks uh, in mountain ranges. And that's something we do every year, and that's something that
0: um, helps define who I am. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. All right, we're going to do one more question, and then we're going to get down to business and and talk some some good things here. So last question I've got is, what is your favorite go-to order at? A hometown restaurant, a place close to your house. When you go to that restaurant, tell me the
5: restaurant, and then tell me your go-to order, what you get most of the time. Can I just say one thing first? Go ahead. One thing that drives me crazy is people that go to restaurants they've been to a thousand times before, but still don't know what they want when they get there. <laughs> I agree. So <laughs> you're not one of those. People. I'm
0: not one of those people. So okay. the moment
5: I decide to go, I know what I want. And so I'm tell ready. me. So uh, I would have to say one of my favorite things is Mo Bess. Okay. People visit us here Lehigh will appreciate that. Uh, the mini mix plate with uh, teriyaki steak and teriyaki chicken. Mm.
1: There you go. I'm getting
0: hungry. We're yep. doing this right before lunch, so maybe I shouldn't ask that question, but we'll go ahead anyway. Joe.
1: There you go. What about you? Uh, there's a great little place in Payson, Utah uh, called Tapatio's, and they do a great fajita. It's a pineapple fajita. Cool. So they grill the, the fajita <laughs> in the pineapple and the pineapple together. On the grill, I guess, and they put it all together. It's just, it's just terrific. That's what we like, my wife and I.
0: Oh, that's
4: great. So I happen to live one valley east of Park City, on the Wasatch back, in a valley called the Camas Valley. And in the little town of Camas, there's a little um, diner called High Mountain. It used to be a drugstore. Used to be High Mountain Drug, but they had to take "drug" off the name because it's no longer a pharmacy. But they have that old counter diner set up there, and they do a burgers and shakes and all the, the traditional basic things you expect, a little hometown diner, and the Whack Burger there is what my go-to favorite. So, so, what's on the Whack Burger? Uh, Whack Burger? No, I'm not even sure. It's a secret sauce. I just always order it and eat it. It's just so good. I, I never venture away from that when I'm there. Uh, so, I I haven't even looked to see what's on I just say, give me the Whack Burger, and they bring it. I eat it quickly because it's so good. and, and so I can't even tell you all the ingredients on it. I
0: go through Canvas several times a year. I'm going to have to
4: stop and, and try it. High Mountain, one. got to get the burger and the uh, shakes, any kind of shake, the licorice shake. Mm-hmm. Not something you would think about. Is it black or red licorice? Uh, black licorice. Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting, uh, a surprise, a, a good surprise. So, hmm.
0: Well, thank one. you. That's, thank you very much. All right, so we're going to get down to business. Um, in fact, what we're going to do here, JB, you want to kind of lead us in?
2: I would love to. Um, you know, this is actually a, a topic that I've, I'm, I'm excited about getting to, and I'm, I'm glad, and, and certainly appreciate everyone being able to be on this uh, on this call because it's so today. We're going to talk about GDPR, uh, specifically GDPR, and um, I think before we actually get into the meat of of GDPR, uh, there's there's some things that we want to set forth, right? So, uh, you know, going forward, we're, we're going to talk about some some Topics that, that just require some interpretation. And, and I'm going to let Dave, Dave Hansen, if, if you wouldn't mind uh, taking us through just maybe some, uh, a little bit of disclaimers, if you will, on, on what the people are about to hear.
4: <laughs> yes, in talking about um, GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which was passed by the European Union and went in, uh, actually passed a couple of years ago, went into effect a year ago. And it is a regulation that, while specifically for the European Union, has been – is being followed around the world by many different countries and nations. And so we're very much affected by that. And we want to talk about our experiences regarding GDPR and, and what we have done in working with customers in that. And in doing so, we need to be clear that we are vendors, we're not attorneys, and so we're not going to be offering legal advice here. We can't do that. And so we're just going to be sharing some general observations and experiences and would certainly encourage anyone listening, if they have specific GDPR questions or um, concerns about how they can comply with that, that they should speak to their own legal counsel and get that direct advice in that manner and just look to what we're saying here. It's just some general thoughts and guidelines to, to stir some ideas there.
2: Perfect. Thank you, Dave. I I appreciate that. And uh, I I think I'd like to get the ball rolling uh, with a a rather, it it might seem like an easy question, uh, although it's a little bit nuanced. But I I think there's a lot of people out there who are heads down, uh, you know, buried in in technical work and and looking at a bunch of other things. And, you know, you hear the term GDPR. We know it affects us somehow in, in the tech industry. And then we hear other terms like Brexit. Right. And we, we, we all know uh, kind of what's going on with that one. Uh, I, I think, though, sometimes there is a little bit of confusion and a little bit of overlap. And, and sometimes I've, I've heard people mistake GDPR for Brexit and vice versa. Uh, maybe just to get things rolling here, do we want to, at a very, you know, 40,000 foot level, kind of talk about what GDPR is and how it differs from Brexit and maybe how it intertwines just a tad?
4: Why don't we have Joe describe GDPR? And then Dave, why don't you talk about Brexit and, and outline kind of how
1: those two are interact intertwined? Well, GDPR has been in the making for years. Uh, its predecessor was the European Data Protection Directive, uh, which doesn't have quite the penalties that the GDPR does have, which is a, a regulation that, that cuts across Europe, as David mentioned. Um, and uh, as David also mentioned, it did come into um, uh, enforced. It was enforced last year, so it came into effect last year on May 25th, I think it was. Um, so we've we've been riding now for over a year uh, with enforcement uh, penalties, and all of that's going through the legal process in Europe. Uh, but before that, I mean, it's been it's been in the making for for many years, um, and it. Uh, uh, it, it all it, the, the traditions, the, uh, the 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 rights for citizens under the GDPR have have been around for at least 20 years under the DPD. So, and maybe just
4: before Dave picks up, just to add a little bit to that, uh, just quoting right from Article One in the GDPR, uh, this regulation lays down rules relating to the protection of natural persons with regard to the processing. Of personal data and rules relating to the free movement of personal data. And that is what GDPR is. It is the protection of personal information about individuals in the EU and also rules governing how that information is shared and used. And while that seems like a very simple definition, the ramifications of that have turned out to be far-reaching and are impacting businesses uh, across the globe. And so, with building on what Joe said and the penalties and that, that's what GDPR is about. And then, Dave, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Brexit is and how it fits into GDPR?
5: Well, first off, Brexit Brexit is an independent issue of the GDPR, but GDPR is implicated in in the Brexit process. So, really, what what Brexit Brexit just shorthand for the United Kingdom's withdrawal from the European Union. So, in uh, 2016, uh, voters in the UK voted by pretty substantial margins. Uh, at least the English and the Welsh did. The Scotch and the Irish actually opposed Brexit, but uh, voted to withdraw from the European Union. Uh, and so that process has been ongoing. The initial deadline for the withdrawal was actually has actually passed. It was the end of March. Uh, so what's holding it up is the agreement or the terms under which uh, the UK or Britain will uh, withdraw from the European Union. So, and that's uh, with or without a deal, that's how GDPR is implicated. So, what's the impact on data privacy laws if Britain actually ends up extricating themselves from the European Union? follow-up question on that
2: JB or did that uh... yeah I, I yeah just uh, if you don't mind um, you know if let's just say and fast forward and, and an agreement comes together and again this is wild speculation but let's say brexit goes through um, do we do we know how gdpr would affect uh, citizens of, of the UK so, so it'll be subject to gdpr law and and fines and penalties and well
5: it depends on whether GDPR is addressed or data privacy laws are addressed in the withdrawal agreement in the Withdrawal Act or the or the deal uh, assuming there is one. So if there is a deal uh, that Parliament approves that provides for uh, carryover of the GDPR then your various subjects will be subject to GDPR according to whatever the terms of that deal are. We don't know Um, Right now it looks like the withdrawal if it does happen will be without a deal so what's happened is that the, uh, withdrawal act passed by the by the British Parliament incorporated the GDPR into the UK's existing data protection act of 2018. So it basically brought the GDPR principles in. So your, so British data privacy law will mirror the EU data privacy law, but there's a wrinkle because if there's no deal on the exit, then um, the uh, UK becomes what's called a third country under the GDPR, which means that there are restrictions on transfers from the EU to Britain. Um, To avoid those restrictions, the the, uh, European Commission needs to issue an adequacy decision, um, which would basically eliminate those data transfer restrictions. Uh, Britain would love to have that adequacy decision in place before they pull out, but the EC has told them, we're not even going to consider the issue until you actually leave. So there's going to be some period of time where, if there's a no-deal Brexit, where Great Britain will be a third country and there will be all sorts of restrictions and issues on transferring data from the EU to Great Britain uh, or to the United Kingdom. Uh, so how we're going to address those is uh, the same way we've dealt with them uh uh in the existing GDPR context in that we offer our existing customers uh a set of statutory they're called standard contractual clauses which are added to our master service agreement in uh as an addendum and they provide for handling and processing of of data transferred from the United States to or, or sorry from the EU third countries, and so we'll need to have those in place. We uh, haven't implemented those uh, for entities in the UK yet. We're planning to offer those uh, if and when Brexit occurs. So we do have standard contractual contractual clauses in place with a number of existing customers who are involved in data transfers from the EU to the United States and to other countries outside the EU
0: interesting so i'm 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 curious with with data protection laws with everything that's going on with uh, personal information etc you know in the grand scheme of when you look at gdpr you look at different entities different companies what role does net documents play right i i you know i know that we store the content securely and we are custodians of the data from our customers but what role does net documents as a platform play in this
5: in this realm? Well, using the technical terms of the GDPR, we're a data processor. Our customers, the firms that subscribe to net documents, are data controllers. Uh, So, the controllers are the ones in charge of gathering the information and making sure that their information gathering practices are, are compliant with GDPR, making sure they're getting consent, for example, for specific things. That's related to the information that our customers put into the documents they store in that documents. In that relationship, they're the controller, we're the processor. Uh, on the other hand, we're a business that has employees in the EU, that does business in the EU, and does marketing in the EU in particular. So we have uh, responsibility to comply with GDPR in terms of our data collection practices uh, in relation to our marketing marketing database, for example, and our, our HR documents those kinds of things. So we we have to deal with the GDPR from both of those perspectives. Going back to the first perspective, where we're a data processor uh, for our controller customers, we're in a really different situation than the people that drafted the GDPR or contemplated. If you read the GDPR, they didn't consider a situation like ours. One of the key benefits of NetDocuments is that nobody at NetDocuments actually has access to the customer's documents. We don't know what's in them. We assume there's personal data in there because we have to assume there is and act like that, but we don't know. And so the GDPR never contemplated a situation where the sub where the data processor has no knowledge of the uh, contents or the information that they're processing. And so we've had to we had to be a little be very careful and a little creative in how we. Uh, Adapted and respond to that, and and to the uh, how we phrased the data protection, data processing addendum, addenda that we did to our customer agreements at that time. Uh, The key thing is that if a data subject, who is usually a legal client of a legal of a law firm, comes to us and says, "What information are you storing about me?" We have to refer them back to our customer because we don't have the ability to access that and tell them that information. That's a very different wrinkle. It puts us in a little, little bit of a gray area, but uh, uh, we think we've uh, provided for that contractually, and certainly in our, our processing standards, we're able to we we're, we're acting in a way that's fully compliant with GDPR.
0: Okay, very interesting. Joe or David, any other comments on what David said?
4: I don't have anything. He really covered it well.
2: So I have a I have a question. I know. I, I know being involved in our, our implementations, especially from when we're kind of in the middle of a sales cycle to transition over to the implementation side, there are a large number of questionnaires that come in. Um, uh, I, I'm not in the room, Mike. So if anybody's crawled under the table at this point, let me know. Um, <laughs> Someone's but, in a fetal
0: I, position, but I'm not going to say who. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. No, but I, I, I know that um, I know that there's there's questionnaires that that come across, right? And and just to frame that a little bit. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that are in GDPR, I think, uh, if uh, I'm not trying to make an assertion here, but my understanding is that uh, there's still a large uh, interpretation or, or there's a large amount of room for interpretation on some of these things. And so many times some of those uh, uh, questionnaires can kind of seem like a shotgun approach to figuring out how we deal with things. I, I'm just curious in the past you know, year or so, have you seen a, a major trend or major shift in, in how those questionnaires come in and how they're phrased and formed? Or, or is it just kind of really everyone is unique? Or, or what does that look like for you guys?
4: Let me frame just the, that our response to that by first helping our audience understand. And many of them are familiar with this questionnaire process or this due diligence res, uh, process because they're half of that equation. As a, as a vendor providing uh, services, security services to our customers, our customers are, are under obligations to their regulators, to their own clients, to be able to validate that the services they are using are safe and secure, and that the information that their clients are entrusting to them is being held in a a secure manner. So the law firms will reach out to us, because we are a critical service uh, entity for them, and work with us to ask us to provide validations that we are operating in a secure manner, that we comply with appropriate regulations and other Um, standards that demonstrate the security that we implement so with that framework then I'm going to let Joe kind of respond just maybe talk a little bit about you know what you've seen from customers and then we'll roll over to Dave who's really the uh, the the front lines with that in how the world has been changing in terms of due diligence from our client or our customers and their clients Uh,
1: so I've seen a blending of terminology with personal data and PII. Um, So the PII term seems to be more US-based. PII standing for personally identifiable information. Personal data is the term that comes out of the GDPR and its predecessor, the DPD. There is quite a bit of overlap. Um, We won't get into the details of the differences between the two, but you'll see the, the contracts and the requests that are coming in deal with both Categories. There is a little difference between the two, um, um, but because of the, the laws that are changing the United States, it seems as though people are trying to get a holistic view of privacy uh, that includes the GDPR, but but does not exclude, uh, for example, the California privacy law. Uh, uh, so. Uh, I think it's called the CCPA, um, and, you know, California is, is kind of blazing the path forward for a lot of the other states here in the United States uh, for their privacy laws. So I think what we're seeing right now is a trend toward getting more of a, a universal or generic, um, what I call a high-water mark for um, privacy controls um, or data protection controls for for their work. And as David pointed out, you know we are a critical service provider to, to many law firms, but well, we're just one. Um, there are going to be other critical service providers uh, fairly often in our customers' environments, unless they're a small firm, in which case, we may be the only critical provider. Uh, but uh, anyway, I, I think I'm... I think that's all I have to say on that subject.
4: Dave, you want to talk a little bit about what you've seen in the changes over the last year as yeah. a result of GDPR?
5: By the way, Joe mentioned the California Consumer Privacy Act. With your disclaimer up front about not giving legal advice, uh, the CCPA goes into effect January 1st, 2020. If it's not on your radar, it needs to be, and I'll just leave it there. <laughs> um, as far as the questionnaires we're getting, like I said, I'm the one that is the front line in responding to those. I think we we see a lot of Um, Questions related to our policies and practices regarding data collection, uh, data processing, breach notifications, things like that. We're getting very granular, detailed questions about that. But I notice that some of the questions don't always reflect a true understanding of the relationship between the data controller and the data processor and they ask us questions as a data processor that really more pr- more appropriately apply or should apply to their actions as a data controller. And to the extent people could, in drafting those questions, you know, understand that distinction, Except in answering them we can help them understand that distinction. I think we're, we're making progress along those lines.
4: It's one of the opportunities we've always had at Net Documents as a leader in, in providing security to customers is we're often helping Um, expand their understanding of evolving security controls regulatory requirements and things along those lines and again we can't provide legal advice to our customers that is an obligation they have but we can help them in general terms understand some of the implications or considerations that are coming into play and GDPR certainly shifted the landscape with a renewed focus on how persons now control their personal information. And back in the day, entities would acquire information about individuals, and they would sell it or use it and do all sorts of things with it. GDPR has very much restricted that in a a very meaningful way so that individuals now really have control over how their name, their address, their telephone number, their email address, how that information is used. And entities are still... Coming to terms with what that means for their business and for their operations, and NetDocuments is a uh, an important service that facilitates entities helping to to manage that transition and and gain control over the data that they've gathered, and we work with them to help them understand how to use the service in that manner. And the questionnaires really reflect that that shifting change, as Dave pointed out, a uh, renewed focus on personal data and and how it's managed and protected.
0: Right. Interesting. Now, Joe, you mentioned that the GDPR, the laws that went into effect, um, many years were spent in developing and coming up with the requirements, and I would hope and I believe that was the case where it was publicized and there was a period of time once it was passed before it was actually placed into effect and enforced. It was a two-year period. Right. And so you have all these different entities, these companies and organizations that have to abide by GDPR. NetDocuments happens to be one of those as a a processor, as Dave pointed out, that we have to abide by GDPR as well. So as those were passed and became law, are there specific things that NetDocuments has done within our platform, within our internal processes to address some of these legislation these legislative changes
4: Dave you're kind of uh, as our DMS administrator and, and coming out of special services why don't you kind of take well, a swing at that
5: the, the good news is is that the, you know one of the founding principle one of the primary foundational principles of GDPR is the systems for processing personal data need to be designed from the ground up for privacy and you want a quick way to summarize net documents? That's one, that's one statement you could use. From, like, from day one, we've been, we've been concerned with ensuring the privacy, integrity, and availability of our customers' documents. So, you know, we, we easily met that standard. Uh, so, the next step is, was uh, making sure we had the right tools as features of the service to let our customers um, identify the information they had, find it. Uh, locate it and be able to respond to, be able to understand what they've got and to be able to respond to uh, data subject inquiries and requests for uh, information about what they've, what they've got stored and uh, and to have it removed or appropriate. Again, in those cases, because we don't have access to data, we have to refer those individuals if they contact us and I'm not aware actually that in the last year we've actually had a client of a law firm contact us and say my attorney uses net documents what information do you have on it? that would be the typical scenario for the data we hold and that has happened um, so but we do you know but we also haven't heard from our our customers whether they've had to do the same thing uh, again it's a different it's, it's a very different relationship than the GDPR was written to contemplate where we're talking about information that, a, for example, a content marketing company or Google or Facebook holds versus information held by an individual, individual's attorney. Very different relationship than I think what GDPR was really aimed at. Uh, but we do have the tools in place as, as uh, the service. We've got you know the ability to, to profile and tag documents. Uh, we've got the ability to do data, data, data entity searches and extractions to identify uh, patterns related to social security numbers, for example, and credit card numbers, and to find that information in documents and to be able to identify what documents have that and remove it if a, if a client of a law firm actually wants that information removed from their files. So we put the tools in place, make sure that a lot of them are already there. Uh, where necessary, we've tweaked them to make sure that they, uh, our, our customers have the right tools in order to be GDPR compliant, be able to process that information.
0: Very nice. Now I know, <clears throat> David, I guess more of a question for you. I know that we we have an independent GDPR at this station where we had a third party came in, evaluated our processes, evaluated different aspects. What does that provide? What benefit does that provide to our customers?
4: That's a great question. And as GDPR was implemented, one of the things that is still pending as part of that overall structuring is for the regulatory authorities to create a certification standard that accompanies the GDPR so that entities like Net Documents can be certified as com- being compliant with the requirements listed in GDPR. That's not there yet. It's a provision that is allowed, uh, and we anticipate at some point in time the EU or some other regulatory authority will start to implement those types of certifications. But in the interim, everyone's on their own to demonstrate that they are following GDPR. So we uh, asked a law firm that specializes in this area to come in and work with us in understanding GDPR compliance requirements and then look at how our services um, both let us meet the requirements that apply to us as a processor but then how those services could and functionalities could help our customers in meeting their GDPR compliance requirements. And so that attestation is really a, an independent entity looking at that document in the context of the requirements of GDPR and attesting that this service does provide functionality and tools that entities can use to help them meet their requirements, again, subject to their working with their own counsel and, and under that advice. And also ensuring that documents is meeting our processor requirements in terms of providing security and other requirements that, that are in the GDPR.
0: Thank you very much. Now, I've, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to travel around to different different countries throughout the world. Have you seen any trends from other entities, other organizations, other parts of the world, or have you heard rumors of other places? trying to form laws similar or equal to GDPR?
1: Uh, yes, um, GDPR has kind of set the, st- the standard for the rest of the world um, to follow suit. Um, I do want to make a, a comment really quick to what, what David was saying earlier, though, before we get into that. And that is, um, it's not so much the regulators that are that are going to be creating the standards for the industry. They're going to be waiting for the, the industry Standard bodies themselves, like ISO, for example, to come up with a certification program, and then once that's recognized um, and and published, um, for example, the one I'm thinking of right now is ISO 27552. um, Then the world is kind of expecting the European uh, uh, the European Union to go ahead and um, bless that, yeah, endorse it, endorse it, so that. It can become one of the uh, standards by which we can certify uh, under GDPR. But as of yet, as far as I know, that's not there's there's not a standard out there that's been blessed by the European uh, Communion or sorry European Convention. So, okay. um, so getting back to the the countries that are following suit. Um, there's several uh, countries that uh, are adopting standards now. We see um, Australia, uh, Brazil. Um, uh, there's, there's countries around the world that are uh, putting in very similar controls that are in place that are uh, matching the, uh, the principles in the GDPR, and the controls that we see um, what the GDPR calls technical and organizational measures. those technical and organizational measures are being mirrored in, uh, in different standards across the, the world right now uh, in a big way. so
0: Dave anything to add to that
5: I uh, again it just comes back to you know I think the next big thing on our radar in terms of in, in terms of uh, legal developments is going to be the California law. And uh, that's going to uh, – well, right now, they're out ahead of Congress. Whether Congress uh, adopts, uh, you know, a more national standard of national law to that effect remains to be seen. It doesn't, doesn't seem like that's on anybody's radar, but, you know, enough businesses do California – you know, do business in California or touch California that the, you know, the California law may become the de facto national standard. Yeah, the same. The same way that GDPR has had
0: an influence globally, mm-hmm. that
2: it definitely has. Hey guys, yeah. So, um, uh, just curious. You know, Dave Snow. You know, I'm I'm very much a process guy. Uh, so, uh, out of curiosity, if 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 you're trying to provide a a process or or best practices, if you will, for implementing GDPR, you know, a, a GDPR policy in your organization, how would you do that? Right. So, what what's 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 the best way to go about implementing you know best practices there?
5: Well, I think uh, it's not actually be a process response per se, but I think be- truly uh, becoming GDPR compliant uh, involves uh, changing your mindset. David mentioned earlier that you know, GDPR makes it clear that this information, regardless of how it was obtained and the resources a company expended gathering it, At the end of the day, the information belongs to the individual that it describes. It doesn't belong to the company that owns the database. And that is, in the minds of a lot of people, an absurd result, but that is the result. Um, And you, you know, the handwriting's on the wall, you need to adjust your thinking that way and make sure that your policies and processes and procedures reflect that. Uh, you're fundamentally accountable for the, to the individual for how you use their information and, and that's, that's, the beginning of, that's the beginning of wisdom in GDPR compliance.
1: <laughs> well, on, specifically under Article 35, uh, the GDPR requires a, what's called a, a data protection impact assessment. Yes. So, and that's really the starting point and that kind of goes to, to Dave's point. You want to start with a DPIA or a data protection impact assessment where you're looking at your data flows uh, going in and out of the EU um, and whether or not – and and what you have in your uh, organization, you know, the the sensitive data that you have in your organization, where is that located, where is it being stored, uh, what's being transferred in and out of the country, and, and so on. And it's always
4: important for us to remind our listeners that Uh, We're providing some general ideas here that every entity should seek its um, counsel from appropriate legal um, representation so that they know what applies in their circumstance. Uh, We're not in a position of advising in specific requirements for these entities. But uh, both Joe and Dave have identified really that I think if you were to summarize that down. A change of mindset and an understanding of the, the requirements of GDPR. You need to be, become familiar with what GDPR addresses, and that means you're, you may actually have to get out and read a, a very wonderful piece of legislation or, or regulation.
5: By, by the way, I, this this mindset shouldn't be that big of a shift for our customers, given the most of the law firms, because the GDPR has actually come full circle and, and implements the attitude about customer information or client information that has always been a part of the professional rules of responsibility. Right. The information always belonging to the client, and so again, that should be a big reach for our law firm customers to make.
2: Dave, I think you're sort of reading my mind here on on the next question, which which was, you know, how have or if they have it all, how have law firms changed, or what have we seen, uh, or how have you seen law firms change, you know, as the direct result of of GDPR and and uh, in dealing with that.
5: Uh, you know a lot of their changes in process to be honest don't filter down to us uh, I see the changes in the in the kinds of questions we're getting uh, going back to the question we talked about earlier I, I see it in the kinds of questions we're getting from them uh, in terms of asking about GDPR related processing practices and things like that um, but uh, I think law firms in particular have always handled that information in a way that that respects the principles the the GDPR is based on. Uh, The information belongs to the client, it needs to be held in confidence, confidence. it can't be misused, it can't be used for purposes other than what the client gave it to you for. That's always been a bedrock of of legal professional responsibility and legal ethics. And so uh, it might have changed some of the IT practices within the law firms, but as far as the firms themselves and and, and most of our end users, I don't know that they really had to adjust a whole uh, but they've had to be a lot, they do have to be a lot more comfortable, a lot more careful about the, the services they, they hire, the, the people they hire, to help them deal with that information. That's why we're getting these questionnaires now with GDPR questions in them.
4: One thing that has changed is that law firms are looking more globally yeah. than they used to. There's a realization that the world is much smaller than it used to be. Our, the technologies that we use now have made it possible for information to go around the globe and from any country to any other country. And with that instantaneous access, GDPR has really raised the awareness that there are responsibilities and obligations, which fit right in with what you said, Dave. But I think there was a tendency to kind of just look in our own backyard. GDPR has reminded us that we are a global family and we're all interconnected. And with the internet and with the exchange of information, we all have to be more careful with what we do with the information we obtain.
0: Those are all great points. Um, <clears throat> so, kind of to wrap up, we've taken plenty of time, and we're so appreciative of this. And, and we want to remind our listeners once again: this is not legal advice by any means. Go consult your legal counsel. This is just opinions and observations from the documents compliance department. But you know, GDPR is not just a one and your done. It's an ongoing, constant effort, especially because I, I would envision that GDPR and other laws that are similar in nature will evolve over time as technology changes, as thought processes change, etc. So what would be, you know, if you had one or two pieces of advice, and this is advice, not legal counsel, I can't stress that enough, what would you offer as advice for organizations on being able to, to keep up with the, the regulations of GDPR?
1: Well from a security perspective I would say uh, you know uh, go to your technical or organizational measures look at, at what you're doing with the, the data that you do have make sure that you've identified the data that you do have in your organization that's, that's protected under GDPR um, and then um, look at what you need to do with it in addition to article 35 that I mentioned earlier about looking at your impact of the impact assessment there's the uh, the record of processing activities under article 30 and you want to look at the, the kinds of documentation that you need to be storing about the information that you're protecting and how because you, you're going to need that documentation for any kind of an inquiry as Dave mentioned earlier earlier if, if, if there's any kind of inquiry from an authoritative body that 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 you're going to have to be prepared so that's uh, look at Article 30 for the the things that you need for documentation, um, and uh, that's that's my advice. Dave,
5: uh, just to go along with that, looking at those things and isn't it like Mike said, it's not a one-time, not a one-time thing. My advice would be, don't get complacent and don't get lazy. You got to you got to implement the policies and you've got to make sure they're being followed and you've got to continue to train your people on that because it's easy. Follow the bad habits that can get you sideways with the regulatory body on one, uh, on these and and, uh, and you don't want that. You want to be able to demonstrate that you're making a, a long-term consistent good-faith effort to comply with these regulations. If you've got a GDPR regulator looking at your operations that's the only thing that's going to save you.
4: And I think just the final thought I would add is that we are just at the beginning of this journey. Uh, what we're seeing right now is we didn't even envision some of these mm-hmm. things a year ago. And I, the one thing I do know is that a year from now, there are going to be new topics that have emerged that will become very important that we're not envisioning right now. We're very much at the beginning of a long journey. And all of us need to be to stay aware and abreast of the changes and, and the ebbs and flows of how this is interpreted and applied, because the only constant will be change and we need to be ready, all of us ready, to embrace those changes and, and
0: adapt to those changes. Gentlemen, thank you. <clears throat> Lots of words of wisdom shared with us today. We appreciate your expertise. And uh, we, we may come back and have another chat in a year from now to see how things have changed again.
4: That's great. Well, we appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for having us. Thank you.
3: Welcome back we're done with the break we had a great conversation with those three and i mean juggling that that surprised me i can't believe that joe (laughs) juggles in fact you know what i bet if we got a if we got a petition from our customers perhaps at elevate us maybe we could get joe on stage to juggle for
2: us that'd be awesome that would be awesome i do it In fact, it would be great if we could have people pick the items that he needs to juggle.
5: Oh,
3: that could be interesting. (laughs) Okay, my personal question for you then, JB, if you could have Joe juggle objects, what would they be?
2: I would like to see a bowling ball, a chainsaw, and a torch.
3: (laughs) Is the torch lit?
2: the torch is lit and, and more importantly, the chainsaw is going.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I would pay to see that Joe, your challenge has been thrown down. (laughs) That's great. All right. Do you have a question for me?
2: I, I would have to say of all, I, I know you're going down, um, uh, to to Brazil uh, for the Fenelon uh, event that's going to be down there, yep. um, and and for our audience, they they may or may not know that you actually spent some time in Brazil and, and served on a mission down there in your in your younger days. Um, what are you most looking forward to going back to Sao Paulo? Uh, you know, I, as somebody who's never been there, obviously you know we uh, you know my my limited vision of of Brazil is is really you know um, you have this picture in your mind how you picture it. Uh, as somebody who's been there, what, what are you looking most forward to going back and and seeing, or maybe it's an experience or, or maybe it's the food or the culture, but what, what, what do you like about that area?
3: Yeah. So, so there are two things that really excite me when I go to Brazil. The first one is you're right. I did, I did live in Brazil back in my younger days, but I just enjoy being able to speak Portuguese again, full time. And as I started to go back down and and really dust off all the cobwebs and everything, you know, the first time when when I go back down and start speaking Portuguese, I'm still translating real time in my head. And so the end of the day, it's I am just completely exhausted. Uh, But as I as I kind of get more used to it, it becomes a little bit more effortless. And so I'm not as tired, but I, I really enjoy speaking Portuguese and interacting with the people. The other thing that I absolutely miss, and I've, I've had it several times. Cause you know, in, in the U S you have Brazilian restaurants that, that some of them do a good job of the food. Some of them not so good, but there is a, in English it's called cheese bread. And it's just these little balls of cheese and bread in, in Portuguese it's called pão de queijo. And down in Brazil, you just can't. You just. I haven't had any in the U.S. that are the equivalent of down in Brazil. It is just the really? most delicious thing. Oh my goodness! Yeah, JB, if I were take if I were going to take you down there, I would introduce you to Pão de Queijo. It, <laughs> it's it's stunning. So those are the two right. things that I look forward to when I go to Brazil.
2: That's awesome. No, that's that's really cool. Yes, excellent. excellent. Yeah. Well, I. I you know, typically we have a a fun fact or something that we close out with. And Mike, you always do such a good job with those. Uh, you know, I, I, yours, you you've kind of, there's there's a story and history behind them. And for today's, it's it's not as long, um, but I thought that we could maybe relive some of the fact finding that we did. You and I happened to be on site together um, recently at uh, in, in Washington D.C. And I remember sitting in a room, and as we're sitting in this room, we're, we're kind of looking out and we're, we're we're noticing everything. And and you know, the, there's not a lot of tall skyscrapers. You you look in a lot of the other uh, cities that we go to, New York, for example. Man, talk about skyscrapers everywhere. Chicago, um, you know, Philly. You, you've got all of these really tall buildings. But then when you get into D.C., everything's sort of level and flat. I remember at one point this this rumor, hearing this rumor, um, you know, and and that. Hey, no building in Washington D.C. can be taller than you know either the Capitol Dome or or the Washington Monument. Those are the the, the two things that you normally hear, right? Um, I had heard that, and and I just sort of assumed naturally that that was correct. Um, have you heard that as well, or or?
3: Yes, I have. I I, that, I think it's a common rumor or myth or yeah, but but definitely I've heard yeah. that.
2: Yeah, so I remember, you know, we were sitting there talking about that, and and there was some discrepancy. We were trying to figure, if I remember correctly, I think we were trying to figure out which one it was. Could it not be taller than the Washington Monument or the Capitol dome? And and it turns out, what we found out is is both of those are untrue. It's it's a myth, right? So in uh, apparently in Washington D.C. there was uh, well there was an earlier one, but the most recent there there was a, a 1910 height of buildings act, which was. Uh, created to say how tall the buildings in um, in Washington DC could be and really it has nothing to do with the Washington Monument or the Capitol Dome in fact uh, it takes height from the width of the street on which the building is situated uh, so really it's more of a, a design or an architecture thing so there is a maximum cap uh, of a hundred and thirty a uh, hundred and thirty feet and so that's around. Eleven stories, right? So most buildings, depending on how wide the street is in front of it, there's a, a max cap of 130 feet or, or 11 stories. Um, the exception being Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Avenue. You can you can go up to apparently 160 feet in some parts of Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, but really that's that's ultimately what determines how tall the buildings can be and why you get those wide sweeping views of of, um, of the, the downtown district.
3: It definitely gives DC a unique look and feel for the for the size of city that it is.
2: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. A little bit more open. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's uh, so I I found that to be interesting and just goes to show you're never too old to learn something.
3: So absolutely, there you go. that's a great fact, JB. Thank you very much, yep. and thank you one and all for listening to another episode of Legally Cloud. And by the way. If you want to reach out to us, I've had a couple of people already hit us up on Twitter, at at LegallyCloud. And uh, especially if you want to be on the show or maybe you have a question for for me or JB, we'd love to hear from you. At LegallyCloud. And until next time, thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Until next time, keep your head in the clouds.